Hello, and welcome back to OA on Air via social distancing. This week, Suzanne Morse fills in for Cayenne on 321 Go. Then, Cosmo interviews Roberto Arista, a principal with Waltham based Dakota Partners. First up, 321 Go. Hello, and welcome to another edition of 321 Go on OA on Air. Our deeper look into the world of public affairs culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. Joining me here on 321 Go is Suzanne Morse. Hi, Cosmo. Hey, Suzanne. My colleague here at Seven Letter. Suzanne, how you doing? I'm doing okay. Excellent, excellent. Been a busy week already. That is true. So here we are in the week of Veterans Day, which is every year, November 11th. Um, uh, the day we honor our U.S military armed forces veterans uh and people around the country uh myself included who have uh family members and in, in, in my case several but my father uh my late father a uh a u.s uh, uh, world war ii veteran uh, of the yankee division uh often think about their own loved ones but really it's a time for the entire country uh to pause and recognize anyone who has served um uh, in that way, as part of the armed forces uh, for the United States. And Suzanne, I know you've been thinking about it this week also. Yeah, I was. I mean, I think the first and, and most important thing to acknowledge is that we do have this continuous and ongoing debt to our veterans. Um, it's interesting to know, according to data from the Pew Research Center, there's an estimated 19 million U.S. veterans as of April of this year which is less than 10% of the total U.S. adult population. So I think what it shows is that the, the burden of fighting two decades of war in wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq was on a pretty small percentage of, um, of the population as a whole. And, you know, it's also important to acknowledge that the challenges that veterans have faced in terms of facing homelessness, addressing challenges related to PTSD, gaining employment, that's in general. But then as there are inequities uh, related to race, gender, sexual orientation in our society, those inequities are also seen among our veterans population. I read a piece today in the GRIO by um, U.S. Representative Anthony Brown, who said, you know, there are more than 2.5 million black veterans and counting, but too many face challenges driven by historic inequity and barriers that have existed in our country since our founding. So I think, you know, as we thank and acknowledge veterans for their service, we also have to look at, um, you know, look at the challenges that they face in general, and then also how those challenges get expressed across the inequities that, that we have in American society. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a great observation. Something that I've, I've periodically sort of you know, marveled at or thought about um, it, 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 for all the different ways that we um, analyze the demographics and the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the habits and or the features of the millennial generation and Gen Z and it's it's sometimes second or third or fourth or uh, in uh, in line of thinking or, or forgotten that 
you know, a, a, a meaningful segment of that era of, uh, you know, millennial is, you know, is a ongoing category of uh, war, not just, you know, not just veterans of the, of the service, but right. war veterans, combat veterans, combat veterans, 20 yeah. years worth, uh, you know, we, when you and I grew up in an era where, I mean, there was, you know, it, it was this, that, that, you know, the more I look back on the eighties and even in the early nineties, it's a strange period where it was, Oh yeah. Vietnam, you know, oh, my brought my, my uncle. And, and then, there was this kind of period where it wasn't really part of the, the consciousness. And there were certainly conflicts with uh, uh, periodic military conflicts. And then there was the, this significant new thing for a lot of people. Wow. You know, the Gulf War in 1991. Um, and, and, and that brought, I think, uh, the reality of, um, of, of what military service can mean Uh sort of uh, front and center for a lot of people. Um, but, but it wasn't really until um, I, you know, the, um, the tremendous volume of troop movement and, and military buildup that followed 9-11 uh, for us to realize that, hey, guess what? We are in the middle of a, a, a massive uh, moment in, in U.S. military engagement history that is going to impact generations. And, and, and I, I think that that's that's something that, you know, I will I will not forget ever, uh, and because I'm experiencing it firsthand as seeing so many brave young men and women uh, just being part of that in in uh, uh, you know in in the in their lives in their American experience. Yeah, and I think that that's why this. Veterans Day is so important. It is the first time in 20 years where we're not at war in either Iraq or Afghanistan. I mean, there are certainly still, um, there are active duty military members who are in places that are, are you know, dangerous, etc. So I don't think we can, we can forget that. But the reality is we had these two um, military engagements in Iraq and Afghanistan, and this is the first time in two decades that we are not in those places. And this is a good point, I think, for us to start to reflect on what those two engagements meant. And I do, I wonder how history will reflect on this period of history. And I, I worry and I wonder if we haven't, if we have done enough to kind of reflect on what these last two decades of military conflict have meant um, for us as a society. And especially for those who actually fought the wars are the veterans who, who were in those combat zones. Yeah. I mean, when you think about growing up and the reverence that, that, uh, that we have had and that we, we, we continue to have, and, you know, um, there, there's a, there's a, um, gentleman in art in my community where I live who's just turned a hundred years old on Halloween. He's, uh, oldest resident of this town and uh, a World War II veteran. And it's the kind of figure that you grew up kind of just, you know, admiring and, 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 and marveling at. And I hope that the young people, as in the children of tomorrow or in the next generation, look upon this category, this era of veterans uh, in the same way, looking up to, wow, you know, that this guy is, you know, he, he was in the Iraq war. He fought in Afghanistan. Wow. You know, I, these veterans deserve that reverence uh, as as much uh, as any other era. I agree. Um, 
I all, but I do wonder, it goes back to the statistic I cited earlier that, you know, less than 10% of the U.S. adult populations are veterans. So, you know, I think coming out of that World War II generation, you know, most, um, most families had, had a veteran in the family because of, because of the differences in terms of, you know, there was a draft at time at that time, et cetera. Um, and it's not as much of a collectively shared experience um, today as it was coming out of World War II or, you know, I think even out of the Vietnam era, though, of course, that was a very different kind of military conflict. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that that is why we need to almost be more intentional when we think about yeah. what yeah. veterans need, because it, it isn't as much of a collectively shared experience as it was, you know, 70 or 80 years ago. Yeah, it's, it's, that's a really good point. All, the, the, you know, the, the very much narrower uh, or much more narrow uh, slice of the population uh, that, that makes up this group, uh, you know, to, yeah, just like you said, all the more reason to, uh, to really honor and uh, revere their commitment and their sacrifice. I agree. All right. Veterans Day. Thanks, Suzanne. Hey, up next, let's talk about New York City in a few different ways. I actually uh, had the uh, you know, wonderful experience of being in New York City for a couple of days and nights uh, for a, um, a client event, a significant event. Uh, a company we work with is called Trinity Financial, uh, one of the most uh, uh, active uh, and, uh, and, and highly regarded developers of uh, affordable housing communities all throughout the Northeast, particularly Massachusetts, uh, you know, Connecticut, New York, New York City. Um, um, we had the ribbon. We had the ribbon cutting for uh, a project in the Brownsville neighborhood of Brooklyn. Uh, it, it's called the Van Dyke Van Dyke Three. A terrific event. So I was down there for that, and that was uh, very exciting. And I got to experience um, a little bit of Manhattan because that's where we. That's where I stayed for a couple of nights, and. Um, I got to tell you, you know, I, I can't, I, I'm not equipped to say, oh, New York is back, but the level of activity, uh, the level of, uh, of the number of people uh, day and night out and moving around and, uh, and unfortunately the, the congestion of the traffic seems to be returning to, uh, um, you know, more uh, typical levels. Uh, and if you think about those very dark, days uh all over the country but certainly in new york where every day was a grim uh grim portrait of COVID 19 accompanied by an equally grim uh you know uh press conference from uh uh, former former governor cuomo uh long before his uh his downfall and 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 you know, it, the streets of New York were, were vacant and there was a great flight out of New York and, and things seem measurably different now and, 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 and closer to normal, though. Certainly, I'm sure the numbers would suggest they have a long way to go. So was it your sense? I mean, in terms of your observation, did you see, you know, a lot of mask wearing on the street? I mean, understanding that, I think, yes, it feels like a lot of cities, including Boston, um, and I'm sure New York, are starting to feel like they can get back to some place that is approximating 
normal, but I wonder if normal is going to include, you know, some of these now, you know, parts of our daily lives, which is if you leave your apartment or if you leave your house and you're going in a crowded area, then you're going to be wearing masks, even if you're outdoors or, you know, how, how is your feeling about, about the changes that may be at least semi-permanent? Yeah, it's a good question. I would say, um, you know, that, uh, there, you know, there, there was a lot of many people, uh, I, I probably should have tried to observe whether it was the majority of it, but a lot of mask wearing appropriately. So I think some people walked down the street wearing a mask just because it, it, it might be the easiest just to keep their mask on or whatever. Um, but there's a lot of, a, a lot of people wearing masks, certainly when you're, when you're getting into a, um, a, a, a taxi or an Uber, um, I don't know if it's, if it's because of policy or just uh, common what's considered courtesy at this point, but it's you know I think that that was the case in, in in every you know of the many rides I took around the city. It's what it's what people did and what people do. Same with entering into a business. Yeah. But here's the thing: what I found interesting is I you know I did not go into a single establishment like a restaurant or a blues club or a pizza place where you sit down uh, um, or a, a, a restaurant, an Italian restaurant, all of which, by the way, I, I did go to. Um, and <laughs> without being, and it, was, it, it, was, it was made known to me right away, I think my wife, because she had been in New York a while ago, that you can't get in without your, you can't get in without your vaccine card. Meaning you've got to show yeah. it and, and show it in a valid way. I had mine with me. I also took a photo of it just to make sure I had it. And it, and it's, you know, it wasn't, it was like being carded, you know, it was like your, like your driver's license. It, uh, it was all very friendly and it didn't feel intrusive to me. Um, and, and I didn't experience, I didn't experience or witness anyone sort of protesting. Um, and I don't, you know, that, that's just a little one per, tiny, tiny microcosm experience in, in, in this massive city. So who knows overall what people feel, though, you know, I, I hear and see a lot of protesting and, um, and dissatisfaction here in Massachusetts with mask mandates and things like that and the vaccine. And, and I'm sure and, and certainly and I'm sure New York has this, a lot of the same, but it was not a, you know, it was not a, a controversial kind of thing that I saw that, you know, people having to account their vac for their vaccine status to get into a place where, by the way, then you didn't have to, and most people weren't wearing a mask in the actual establishment. Well, I think that's probably indicative of the, of the trauma, right? That New York experienced so early in the, in the pandemic. And, you know, similar to what we were talking about when we were talking about Veterans Day, you wonder how long it's really going to uh, take for um, that city and a lot of other communities across the country to uh, to deal with the trauma of, of this pandemic. I mean, we're not, it isn't over. We should always rem remind ourselves that, you know, there are, there are still people who are suffering every day and there are still people who are sick and, and there are people, unfortunately, who are still dying because of COVID-19. We do see, I think, I'm hoping, knock on wood, a pathway out, but you know, with the vaccines, with the new therapeutics that seem to be coming online. But um, I think that what's left over is this is this trauma. Um, and, 
Um, I don't know that we've yet really learned or really have dealt with that in any kind, in any kind of substantive way. Yeah. No, I think you're right. One thing, I think one thing that's different and even, you know, sometimes I look at the numbers and the, the rate of, uh, infection versus vaccination. Like, you know, I mean, this is still very much a risk and I, you know, I'm very much a, a, a clear, you know, a, a, a danger, a health, yeah. a public health risk, but it feels very different. And I, and I do think it's because of the absence of that dread, that fear of the unknown, that completely, uh, yeah. Um, you know, astonished kind of feeling you had. And New York is a good example. I, I remember early on, you know, l- looking at the, you know, the uh, news coverage of Rome and Italy and these, you know, these dramatic f- pictures of people singing from their yeah. apartments because they can't leave the house. And you're like, oh no. And then New York with the tractor trailer refrigeration, uh, more, you know, portable yeah. morgues and just stuff that was like, what the heck? Talk about traumatizing. And I think that, uh, really um, was a big part of the trauma that people that we all experienced, and th- that unknown part is 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 mostly absent now. And, and I think that gives that empowers people to feel a little more confident, even if you you, you ought to still be you know very careful and very uh, uh, very aware of what you're doing, and 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 you know use best practices in, in protecting yourself. It's and it's true. New York was 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 badly hit. Um, just going back for a moment to Brooklyn and that neighborhood in Brown in uh, Brownsville, yeah, uh, t- terribly, terribly uh, impacted by COVID nineteen, um, and 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 badly damaged by the virus. So, um, it, it's it's a rebuilding process in uh, in that city. It, it's rebuilding everything, and I don't mean buildings and structures. I mean rebuilding an economy, rebuilding trust in government, rebuilding, uh, you know, c- confidence and being able to resume your life. All those things. Yeah, I think um, I think that those are very valid points. I, you know, I did want to, since you mentioned Brownsville and you also did mention Trinity Financial, I think it is worth just spending a minute talking about that project. It is such an amazing project. Um, not only is it a partnership um, between Trinity Financial and NYCHA, and not only is 100% affordable, but it's also a mixed-use uh project. It includes an early childhood educational center and an urgent care clinic and a wellness center. So just talk a little bit about that Van Dyke 3 project and what you saw in terms of also kind of bringing some hope to that Brownsville neighborhood. That's exactly it. And that's exactly NYCHA being the New York City Housing Authority. I think the biggest housing authority, public housing authority in the country um, for sure. But it was, it, it's remarkable. You know, look, there's a community there and you can see the housing stock um, is, is, you know, it's vintage. I'm trying, you know, it's vintage. It's old, right? Uh, it's, it, it's old. And, and one by one, I think this, you know, and, and this was, this was alluded to from some of the speakers that you can, you can see how one by one, these prod, these buildings can be, uh, improved, upgraded, replaced. In this case, there was a vacant site, and they said, "You know what? Let's create a model for the future of this community." Uh, and, and and they did, and it's a wonderful facility with uh, uh, great features of you know basketball court outside and a, and a uh, wonderful uh, sort of play area and, and public space, but also you know roof deck features and and, and things that um, you know in years past you would not you would not associate with. 
with a hundred percent affordable public housing project. Um, and, and I'm glad that, that now we can, because every person is deserving of, of the kind of lifestyle that people expect in a apartment community. And, 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 and it can be delivered in a way that's responsible for the, uh, that's, you know, responsible for the city and that where, uh, Partners like Trinity and, and, and the financial partners uh, get involved and, and uh, have a stake in this. So it's a really, a, a really, uh, it was a really great day and a really exciting thing to see. And, the, and, and I, I did take, uh, um, you know, uh, a tour of the building. We had self-guided tours and it was really a, just a great facility and, and good to know that 179, uh, you know, units, households uh, are going to have the opportunity to live there and, you can't you can't guarantee the future, but it, it, it certainly suggests that this can be a model going forward for for creating and hopefully replacing uh, public housing. You know, one project at a time. These are not things you just do overnight. It takes years. Right. Um, but in this case, not that many years. Like two. You know, <laughs> it's pretty good. They, they they announced it in 2019, and here we are. It's done. And it was yeah. and it was and there was nothing in the ground at the time. So. It's a great um, project and a great partnership with uh with between those two entities. Indeed. All right, Suzanne, that's great. Uh, my so my that's there. That's what I did on my on my trip to New York, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, and hey, let's let's close out. Oh, look, it's it's getting dark. It's four p.m. Why is it getting dark? This is terrible. No, it is not. <laughs> I I do not agree with that statement. You don't. You so so. You hate all the whining over daylight savings time. Yes. I am. Well, yes, I am a fan of it getting dark early. I have always been. I have always been this way. It's not for me. It's not a social media phenomena. I've always liked it when it gets dark early. Does that, but, does that just mean, I want to just get this, get, be clear on this, because don't you just mean you, it's a it's a worthwhile trade off for the sun to come up earlier, or do you just you literally like the you like sundown? You like oh great, it's getting dark. Uh, I like sundown, right? Like I understand. Yes, you're right. The what people don't seem to understand is the end of what the end of daylight savings times just means that the hours get shifted. So the shifted. So the sun comes up an hour, you know, what seems like an hour earlier um, to your body clock. Um, but the same, it's the same amount of time, you know, where the daylight is up. I just happen to like spending more time in the dark is maybe the better way to put it. I like it that it gets dark earlier. Um, I actually feel, tend to feel very melancholy during the month of August when we have very long afternoons. I'm not sure what that says about me, but that's how I am. I always have been that way. I know. <laughs> so anyway, I am a fan of the fact that it, it's going to be dark shortly, uh, you know, this afternoon. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, I'm, in, I'm sort of, I just accept, I'm indifferent, I guess. I'm, I accept it. I, 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 I love August. I love July when, the, you know, the sun's, you know, you, you, if I can play golf until 830 at night, uh, then I'm happy. So that's kind of how I judge things. And in this case, the season is pretty much over, but you can catch, if it's, if it's warm enough, you can catch some early morning golf. Uh, the sun's up earlier. I, I don't, I definitely don't like, it dark at 6 50 a.m that, that's just like what is come on let's yeah right day, let's get this day going come on and, well and because you, you're a pretty early riser too so I, I, I think that makes sense i mean for me i also kind of feel like 
the deal is we live in New England. It gets dark in, you know, November, December, and January. That's just part of the deal in living in New England. It gets dark and cold in the winter. And I understand lots of people don't like it. And I certainly understand parents who don't, you know, who feel that dealing with their children who are dealing with the time change, that that can create a lot of complications in their life. I understand it. But I feel like people need to embrace the fact that you live in a part of the country where in certain months, it's just going to be darker. Like, that's the reality is, you know, we live that far north, so you know, far enough north where in certain times of the year, you're just going to have to deal with, you know, more hours in the darkness than you are in the daylight. And so we like to embrace that. Are there particular things that you like to do during sundown and to cook or, or you know. yeah i mean i like to cook i like the and i also like the holiday baking stuff and i guess i always associate you know like smells of you know warm spicy things with you know getting dark early but i, I don't know it is just I, I actually, you know what i get i get that i i, I kind of do also I, I get what you're saying there's there's something about that the which you know there's something about that late you know early not even early even just late late afternoon kind of transition to evening it's it's a very nice uh autumnal into winter kind of thing that uh yeah i associate that with uh uh with the with the wonderful aromas of a good kitchen yeah exactly it's the seasonality it's you know you know you're heading into the holiday season you're it's the you know period where there's a lot of you know, people hanging lights on their homes and everything. I don't know. It just, to me, I like it. I've always liked it. I think that, you know, a lot of people take to Twitter whenever it, you know, both times of the year, both in the spring and the fall to complain. And I just want them to embrace it. Got it. All right, Suzanne. Good stuff. Suzanne likes the darkness. That's going to do it for another edition of three, two, one go. Thank you again, Suzanne Morris. Our program is recorded remotely around the Commonwealth and elsewhere. Our producer is Catherine O'Brien for a period of time still. Catherine O'Brien's our producer. Um, thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Nasir. Okay, up next on OA On Air, we're joined by Roberto Arista, co-founder and president of Dakota Partners, a development and construction company specializing in affordable housing across the U.S., based in Waltham, Massachusetts. Roberto, it's great to have you. Thanks for joining us on OA On Air. Good afternoon, and thank you. I'm happy to join. Uh, it's, it's, it's great to have you. You know, um, the... The race to meet the demand for housing at market rate for affordable housing uh, is has just grown exponentially um, in, in, in so many markets. Certainly here in Greater Boston and New England, but I know around the country, uh, and that's something that you have a really unique and important perspective on because uh, you're right there in the middle of delivering quality housing, quality product. Uh, uh, and uh, not just uh, uh, through development opportunities, but also doing a lot of your own construction. And I thought you might talk about that at first, just a little bit of the background on Dakota Partners and, and how the company uh, uh, developed and evolved over the last 10 years uh, here in Massachusetts. Sure. Happy to do that. 
Um, just touching on the housing crisis, I, uh, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit later, but it really goes back to the, the financial crisis of 2008. We're still, you know, we're still kind of catching up on that. But anyway, so Dakota Partners was founded in 2006 uh, by myself and my partner, Mark Daigle. And uh, in 2006, we were actually doing a lot of condo development in and around the city, mostly infill sites uh, in and around Boston and some neighboring states. And um, we, we sort of shifted our strategy after the, or during, let's say, during the financial crisis when, uh, you know, basically the banking industry just shut down completely. Uh, and we had to kind of reinvent ourselves. And at that point there, we decided to move into affordable housing. Uh, there is a, a, a fortuitous component to that because um, tax credits, uh, because that's how the industry is, the affordable housing industry is, is, is financed through tax credits, um, was, uh, you know, in my view, in our view, was a very complicated business. And so we weren't really enamored with the idea. But once we got into it, and that was around our first project that we submitted an application for was in 2007. And we finally, uh, in fact, it was right in, in the midst of the crisis. And this, uh, this industry was also affected by that uh, financial crisis. And so we weren't able to close that project for, you know, two to three years. Uh, and I think it was like 2009, 2010, when we finally closed our first project and started it. That was a project in Tingsboro, Massachusetts. It's a, it's, a, it's a small town that's close to Lowell, uh, basically at the border with New Hampshire. And, uh, and then we never looked back from there. Uh, we did that first project. We did a second phase in the same place. And then we expanded to other states, uh, New Hampshire, and then later in Connecticut, and then Rhode Island, and then Virginia. And, and now you know, we're also in New York and Maryland and in Ohio. So um, the reason we've been expanding in other states is because this is a business that you cannot really, uh, unless you want to stay very small, um, you can't really build in one state. Uh, the, uh, you know, it's a very competitive process to win projects. You submit a very complex application. It has to hit all the, the right points. Um, and literally, you, you get scored on it. And, and if you come at the top, then you get your project awarded. Um, and so in order to do that, you really have, in order to grow, you really have to move into other states. Otherwise you'll be doing one, one or two projects a year, no more. Um, so that's kind of a, a bit of our background. Where we, where we are today, we are uh, a company of about 50 people. Um, we, are, we have some remote workers, a remote component. We have, um, call it a quasi office, remote office in New York state that's handling that region. Uh, and we have also uh, people who work in Virginia and, uh, and Connecticut. So, um, uh, so we've expanded quite a bit. I mean, we, we obviously started very small. We were just a shop of four or five and then little by little we've, we've grown. Our biggest growth has happened in the past couple of years um, where, you know, where we've ramped up and, uh, and decided to, uh, you know, enter new markets. And, uh, so that's where we are today. Uh, we, we have our, our portfolio now is roughly stabilized portfolio, roughly 1500 units. 
and uh, and we have many more in the pipeline. Um, I hope that gives you enough of a background. If I missed anything, please let me know. Oh no, it it sure does. It sure does, and it's uh, it's great uh, uh, to see that the company has grown such in uh, uh, in the last couple of years. A couple of things I want to touch on. Number one is the strategy of your geographic growth or expansion driven by simply X number of RFPs in one state and, and therefore, you know, opportunistic or are certain states better to work in than others? Uh, or is it a combination of, uh, of factors that say, that make you, you know, say, hey, we, we want to uh, operate in Wisconsin or we feel that there's opportunity in Rhode Island or, yeah. or, or wherever it may be. Yeah, I think it's both. So the first part, which is the geographic expansion, as I mentioned before, is really needed in order to grow because you cannot grow. One state just doesn't have enough volume to support a business unless you want to stay small. So that's one component. The other is where to expand geographically. And your other your second question was, you know, what what makes certain states, why do you move into certain states and not others? Um, and, and the answer is we move into states that we feel are, um, you know, have agencies because this is really a, a program that's governed by state agencies um, that are, um, you know, that are friendly to developers. And by that, we mean, you know, first of all, not small in terms of project size, certain states limit the amount of credits that they give you, tax credits, and therefore limit the amount of, um, you know, the, the, the size of the project. Because if you're not getting certain, more than a certain amount, you can only build a project of, say, 30 to 40 units. We're not that interested in that at this point. We want to go into states where, you know, the minimum size is no, more, no, no less than 60 units, all the way to 100, 120 units. So uh, back to your question, it's really... It's twofold. It's moving into new states because that allows you to expand, grow as a business and moving into good states um, that that allow you to build bigger projects. Excellent. We're talking to Roberto Arista, founding partner of Dakota Partners in Waltham, Massachusetts. Um, Roberto, you mentioned the financial crisis of 2008 and, and 2009. And, you know, as far as, and you mentioned sort of catching up or, or, or still still sort of resolving that. And the question I have is, is this a fair or reasonable statement or, or correct? And if it's not, that's fine, because I, I, I like to be corrected when I'm wrong. But my assumption is that even though the financial conditions that uh, um, uh, developed after the crash of 2008 made it very difficult, uh, for new development, and, and for a period of time, very little was being built, and then for for a, a period of time beyond that, only certain types of construction would get financed, like stick built and so forth. It, it, is it is it because the demand never really subsided in the way, in a way that uh, so the the demand continued to increase, but supply was never really allowed to catch up because the financial conditions wouldn't allow it. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly it. I think that in general, uh, the financial crisis really lingered for a good long time, and therefore there was not um, ample funding for new housing for a long time. Um, and, and then finally, 
when the floodgates opened up again, you can start building, but you know, it's hard to catch up because it's not like you can walk into any place and say, I'm going to get my permit tomorrow. Permitting takes long time. Um, and therefore it is the bottleneck to development and that doesn't change. So, um, you know, so that's partly why, uh, the, the, um, you know, the, the lack of coming back up to a level of development that, that, uh, you know, that was in the past. Then in particular on affordable housing, uh, there is such a need for affordable housing that, you know, you can read study after study after study. And of course, different states are, are slightly different in, in, uh, in condition. But if you take the Northeast, for example, we can't build enough affordable housing to satisfy the need. In fact, we'll never build enough affordable housing to, to satisfy the need because there's just so much need of it or for it. Um, and, you know, you, you kind of sit back and you say, well, people are living somewhere, right? I mean, even if the affordable housing isn't out there, they're living somewhere. Well, they're all living in subpar conditions. You know, families, new families won't be formed because, you know, people live at home longer. Uh, they'll live in their parents' basement, right? Because if they sure. can't find a, an affordable place to live, that's what they're going to do. They won't form a family, therefore not buy a house, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and so, you know, the need for affordable housing is so extreme that we're never going to satisfy it. And, and um, you know, uh, unfortunately, that's a reality of, of, of the condition. And it, it's, it's just... It's just where it is. I know government has been trying to expand the program, but it's political, so it takes time. Roberto, I know sustainability uh, really across all areas of the economy has become very important, but certainly it's uh, uh, it's important in development and construction. We're a public affairs and a PR agency, uh, and uh, I, I love, to, love to brag about our clients. That's what you're supposed to do. And we've got a yeah. client uh, uh, that is, you know, building one of the largest right now, one of the larger or largest passive house uh, developments um, in, in the country. And mm -hmm. I know that Dakota Partners is, 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 is very active in, uh, in passive house construction and, 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 and in developing sustainable projects. And uh, I'd love you to talk a little bit about that and, and a little about how sure. important that must be when you are engaging with and really being responsive to uh, public agencies as your partner in, in a development. Right, right. So our our um, our mission is housing that matters, and uh, by matters we mean to the residents, to the community, and to the environment. So we take the environment very seriously, and um, we've we've embraced uh, any kind of sustainable building uh, that's available and within budget, of course. Um, and our very first project, uh, the one in Tingsboro I was talking about, uh, was a LEED certified building. And um, of course, things have evolved since then in terms of standards for, uh, for sustainability. And um, the most recent, even though there's different versions of it, um, you know, the, the, the most recent standard that we've embraced is Passive House. Um, we've... I don't, I, I mean, I can talk a little bit about Passive House, but we, uh, the agencies, of course, are very interested in, in building uh, sustainably. 
And, and so, you know, we're, we're sort of aligned in that respect. And they do understand that um, it's a little more costly today anyway. Uh, hopefully over time, it'll become the norm and it won't really cost that much more. Uh, but uh, everybody's on board with that. And so we've, uh, we completed our first passive house project in Connecticut last year. Uh, and since we've every single project from that project forward, we're building passive house. And, and, and the, um, one, the one liner for the listener is, is that passive house essentially captures or recaptures ed, as much energy within the building, right, as, and, and reuses as possible. I'm, 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 that's a, probably a clumsy layman's explanation. That you yeah, can... I, I think I think passive house, uh, what you might be describing is it might be called net zero. In other words, uh, you use no more than what you need and you produce it right? Whether it comes from the grid or not, but somehow it's all balancing out. Passive house is building something that is extremely tight. Uh, so very, very tight envelope and, and therefore energy costs to run it are very low, um, substantially lower than any other kind of construction. Um, and um, of course there's good ventilation systems air exchanges to make it a healthy environment. But let me just give you a, um, maybe a, if, when I say this, it'll probably describe what I mean by passive house. And it's counterintuitive. Um, normally, you think of the winter as being the time we're gonna, where you're going to use more energy costs because the heating costs a lot of money. In, in uh, passive house, you're actually, it's the reverse because the body heat of people, the inhabitants of the building, are giving off heat enough to uh, heat your building in the winter, right? Almost just enough so that heating the building in the winter requires a tiny little bit. But in the summertime, when you're using AC, that same heat, right, is causing uh, the building to be using more energy to cool it. Of course, this depends on the region you're in, but generally speaking, that's how it works. So it's a very tight and tight envelope and very energy efficient. Um, we also supplement uh, with solar so that, uh, you know, a lot of those costs, the energy costs are defrayed or, or just, you know, they just don't exist uh, because you're producing them on site. And, um, and you can also do that with wind power. You can do it with other things as well, but we've chosen uh, solar. And, and so our goal really is to get to net zero where the building is actually producing what it uses and it isn't sucking any kind of energy from the grid, extra energy from the grid. Got it. A worthy, <clears throat> a worthy goal and um, indeed an important uh... Uh, sort of platform uh, in all housing development right now in terms of being uh, as efficient as possible. We've been talking to a Roberto, Roberto Arista, <clears throat> Dakota Partners. Roberto, I want to ask one final thing, and that is um, specific to the experience of your company over the past 18 months in maintaining operations during uh, at least the initial COVID-19 crisis. There was that period before really uh, anything or everything was sort of figured out. Uh, it, it, not that we're, it, we're, we're certainly still managing life uh, in, a, in, a, in a global pandemic conditions, but yeah. um, there had to have been a tipping point where your industry 
figured out how to safely, properly manage operations mm-hmm. and adjustment adjustments he had to make in order to do that successfully and not have work sites shut down, you know, uh, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, obviously that's a, a very interesting topic and, um, and very relevant to where we're going. Uh, but I remember back in, you know, early, uh, 2020 when even end of 2019, when news was coming around that, uh, there was this virus that was, you know, doing uh, wreaking havoc in in various places. And we were a little bit incredulous about the fact that it would reach our shores. And then all of a sudden it reached our shores uh, with a a vengeance. And by March 15, uh, there was a mandate to shut down the office. In other words, we had no choice. We had to shut down. And so we scrambled because we actually did not have the technology in place to be able to work remotely uh, and put in place a bunch of stuff like, for example, Teams uh, that allowed us to communicate and all of that. And uh, we all started working remotely. Um, I'm telling you, at least from a personal perspective, I was fearful that we would just fall apart because I didn't really know how we were going to keep it together without being at the office together in the same space. Um, you know, our work is so interactive at the office uh, that, you know, not being face to face was a bit unnerving. Uh, that's one side of the business. The other side, which was construction, we were actually fearful that, um, you know, that the states would shut us down because, in fact, some states did. Um, I think, uh, and certain, certainly certain cities like downtown Boston shut down for a while. We were very lucky that wherever we operated, uh, there was no mandate to shut down construction. However, uh, construction became more complicated uh, because we could not have sites that were as populated as they were, right? We had to scatter the crews and put in place all kinds of, you know, um, directives to, to keep people safe. And of course, uh, there were, you know, people that didn't want to come to work anymore because they were scared to come to work. So, so our productivity on, cons- on the construction side declined. I think the productivity on the development side, the office side, actually stayed, held up pretty well, pretty well. Um, I think the permitting side of things, you know, the land entitlement side slowed down because cities and towns shut down. They started having remote hearings and all that, and that was very um, inefficient. But um, you know, we we managed we managed pretty well over the past eighteen months, and the opportunity that came out of that, which really surprised us, was that we were now able to tap talent in other states because we didn't have to work all in the same space because we figured out how to do it without being in the same space, right? Uh, figured out how to, how to work remotely. And so as I said, uh, I guess we were talking earlier that we've hired people in Virginia, we've hired people in New York, we've hired people in Connecticut, and they're all working remotely. And we, um, the people here in, in Waltham that come to the office 
also are on a hybrid schedule where we come to work three days a week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Monday and Friday, we stay home. So we, we work from home. What we're trying to do, and I think this is um, a common experience to many businesses, is that what they discovered is that, um, you know, there was a certain amount of efficiency from working from home. You're cutting out the commute. People are working longer hours just because your computer is there. Uh, not that that's the best habit in the world, but we were getting more productivity during the, you know, the, the, uh, the crisis than we were prior to. However, you also lose, right? You, you, you can't just work you know, in, in your little hole all your life, right? You need to interact with other people to know what's going on and to, and, and to come up with new ideas. So what we're trying to do is find the best balance between um, work efficiency and, um, you know, work creativity, if you will. And that is the face-to-face -face component. Um, and I think so far it's okay. We, you know, we just came back to the office uh, in September. Uh, you know, we kind of delayed the return to the office because we weren't sure. First, it seemed like it was going well. Then the Delta uh, variant came upon us and all that. So we kept on delaying, just like a lot of businesses did. But now that we're back at the office and hopefully safely, I think we're finding that this, I, I think most, most people are enjoying this balance. And, um, and, and we're just going to do it long term until uh, conditions dictate that we do it otherwise. Indeed. I think a lot of companies are in that position. Balancing work efficiency with work creativity. I think there's a management consulting white paper in there somewhere. Roberto, yeah. Roberto Arista, thank you so much for joining us from Dakota Partners in Waltham here on OA On Air. It's been a pleasure and a great conversation. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.